Have you ever considered starting your own practice? Where do you even begin? And why is it so important to get a line of credit instead of a loan? Listen, and you'll find out from private practice neurosurgeon Brian Gantworker from Los Angeles, and he may inspire you to quit your practice and go out on your own. Welcome to the Physician's Guide to Doctoring. I'm Bradley Block, private practice otolaryngologist, and this show is for physicians looking for personal and professional development. This is everything we should have been learning while we were busy memorizing Krebs cycle. So we cover issues from personal finance, practice development, practice management, main gigs, side gigs, health policy, the medical legal system, and a ton of other topics, and every so often, just a little bit of medicine. Please subscribe and check out the show here or in podcast form. Dr. Brian Gantworker, thanks so much for being on the podcast. It's my pleasure. Thanks for having me. So you, from scratch, started your own practice, right? From nothing, as opposed to me, who just joined a, a well-oiled machine of, of a private practice, right? I never had to, never had to start anything. So this, this terrifies me, this whole idea of like starting from nothing. So what made you... Want to take that plunge and just go, I'll just start something from nothing. Well, um, that's, that's a terrifying thought. And especially if I transpose myself to today's market and climate with, I think that'd be very, very difficult to do it again, but I'm seeing some folks do it. It goes back to, um, I was about halfway through my first year with my first job. And uh, my wife, who's from California, used to run a, a orthodontics practice in Santa Monica. And we were living right next door in an area called Brentwood and still still live there. Um, about six months in, I was sort of not really enjoying myself. I wanted to obviously finish my contract out and do what I had to do. But I had this strange notion of going and sort of just hanging my shingle up. Um, I'd never run a business before. In fact, I had zero business experience, I had zero economics, finance courses in all of college, uh, medical school. I, I knew nothing about starting a business. So um, we were just talking about it and we wanted to do something our way in terms of like the high patient contact and uh, sort of just doing the cases that I'd like to do and being closer to home. And I just see no opportunities at the time I decided to create one. So I got a lot of inspiration, I think, from my grandfather, who uh, used to work for a very large insurance company, uh, Mutual of Omaha, and did very well there, and then decided after many years that he was just going to um, start his own practice, hang his own shingle. And he, But he didn't really give me anything other than the inspiration to do it. Um, during residency, we had a couple of guys who were um, private practice, and it joined um, the academic practice, but told me of you know the days when dinosaurs roamed the earth, and I just had the audacity and perhaps the idiocy to think I could do it too. Um, I will tell you, I, I got a book on how to start a corporation, and I started talking to some people in the community outside of my my general um, specialty, which is neurosurgery. And I remember speaking to a plastic surgeon uh, who was at an engagement party with me, and I his name is Joe. I said, Joe, um, I want to do this thing, but I, I don't know how to do it. And he just put his hand on my shoulder 
and said to me, Brian, just hang your shingle and the patients will come. And so we started out, we got a business license. I got a line of credit and we got our Medicare signed up and got some contracts going and we're subleasing space. And we just started. We just, I was on call, taking call a lot, uh, getting patients that way, but ultimately doing a lot of um, handholding and um, pressing of the flesh with referring doctors. And then it just sort of started to really slowly sort of pick up lint, so to speak. If I were a giant Velcro ball, <laughs> I, I kind of liken it to like picking up lint. But really, as it, as it happened, um, you know, when you are in a community, even a big one, you start to distinguish yourself. People start knowing your name, hopefully in a positive way, not in a bad way. But if you start to distinguish yourself, you're doing good work. Um, you'll get those phone calls and those referrals. So I think the main thing about starting is just to just to have the idea that you're going to do something not totally outrageously crazy, but you're going to do something that will distinguish you from the other ones. And then for us, it's a, a number of things, but you have to really think you could do it. And I think that's the first thing is you have to think you could do it. Um, and we just so there were some in. details. There were some details there that, that you kind of glossed over. First, you're like, oh, and then, you know, we, we got our Medicare or you got accepted under Medicare and then you got on mm -hmm. some commercial insurance panels. Mm -hmm. Right. And that takes forever. Right. Like when I joined the practice, my practice, they were like, mm -hmm. I was still, I guess, a resident. They were like, you got to fill out the paperwork now. And I was like, I can't, I don't have time. I don't have time. I'll do it when I have all this time when I'm done. And then I mm -hmm. did. And then I wasn't on any panels when I started. I was in zero mm -hmm. because I yes. hadn't, there was no lead. This stuff takes months. And meanwhile, what it are does. you doing in that time other than burning cash? You are burning a lot of cash. And that's what it was kind of um, terrifying for the first couple of months. Um, I was on a call panel. I stayed on a call panel for a little bit. And just because of different reasons that I ended up going off that panel, um, and I started on a different panel, and I just started. Uh, it's actually the panel at that time was not paid for; it was just, but it was in a very good paramix. So we started. I started. You know, I actually ate into my line of credit quite a bit, just just to sort of do things. But I think it's also about controlling costs. I mean, a quick story: when I started, and I, I broke off from my first group, and I started my Medicare process. We had a billing company. The billing company started my application through something called Pecos at the time, which is an online application for Medicare, but there was a hiccup and the Medicare got caught and I started seeing Medicare patients and we couldn't move beyond that little hiccup. In fact, I had to involve my congressman, my actual congressman, who I'm still friendly with, in order to push this through. And there were no problems, right? There were no issues with Medicare, but this is an example of you said there were delays and this was a supreme delay. In fact, I didn't get paid by Medicare for almost three months and nearly ruined us. And in fact, one of my patients came up to me and said, it was actually her husband said, why are you not billing? Why are you not billing Medicare? He said, I got this EOB and you haven't billed in them anything. I said, because our number is not kosher yet. It's not, it hasn't gone through. And it, it became an, almost an act of Congress. So you kind of have to be ready to not have that cash flow. And, and when you're first starting out, being able to, sort of figure out where your cost containment can be, but you're going to eat into whatever reserves that you have. And let's not forget the time we were trying to get pregnant, we were paying for IVF. So you think about all those things going through, you know, the incredible stress and strain, and we're not wealthy by, by any means. I mean, not at that time, especially, um, 
but you, you have to be prepared for things to be very, very slowly and you have to be strategic. And I would have to say, if you're going to do it, make sure you're in a good payer mix uh, and that, you know, your, your Medicare gets started early and just be very, very persistent. I think you have to be persistent. But really getting contracted with insurers does take a couple of months. But the main thing is, is just you have to be superb and persistent and you have to still do a good job in surgery. And eventually, you know, you'll be able to bill for those things even six months in, um, in arrears for most commercial insurers. And I think it's still a year for Medicare. So if you did something in February of 2021, you could still bill at that time, I think from a year hence. Um, so you will you will get scary and your reserves may l run low, but you need to just strategically plan your costs and where you're gonna be. And it's, you know, mastery of that revenue cycle is probably still what's taken me almost 11 years to figure out or sort of the ebb and flow of the payers coming in and coming out and also the delays in getting paid. And I just think what you have to do is, you know, first off, get yourself on a call panel, even if it's not paid, hopefully it is paid, but if it, if it isn't paid, um, make sure it's in a good pair mix. If you're in a call panel, make sure you're getting your stipends and, and stay on the person who's supposed to be submitting at the end of the month. Usually it's going to be like a director of the department or the head of the department who may or may not be in your group with you. So you have to stay on top of that because your stipend will kind of float you until you can get that, those insurances starting to flow. Um, and just keep an eye on your, keep an eye on your credit card, keep an eye on your expenses and just try to leave some cash in reserve if you can. But it does get scary, but having a line of credit, that's kind of where it goes back to. Having a line of credit is really important because if you take an SBA loan, it's a one-time thing. And once it's paid off, that's it. A line of credit is revolving and it allows you to dip and, and float, dip and float. And that's what was really important for us getting started in the beginning. Yeah. Makes sense. Like you get, mm -hmm. you get, you get on a panel and then you're able to back build all the stuff that you've been doing. Mm -hmm. And then yep. you can pay down some of that line of credit. Well, yes. then that's good for a little while. And then you're going to be taking out more money again. And then, yeah, so those ebbs and the line of credit helps you manage those ebbs and flows. It helps get you through those ebbs and flows. And it's it's very important that you you build properly and accurately so that you don't get in any trouble with anybody. Um, I've heard you know stories about people being encouraged to bill or upcode uh, by actual their employers, um, not, not their private practice, but their employers asking them, well, document the patient had sepsis or something when they didn't. So it's very important. It's very important. And I had someone come up and sort of ask a general question. We had a coding course and this young person was maybe a year or two into their uh, practice and they were an employment practice. And the, the, the coders for the hospital were coming up to uh, the person and asking them if they could code that the patient had sepsis. And he asked this person, this coder person, if that was okay. And I said, if you don't look good in orange, I mean, it's not a good idea if you if you don't look good in orange. So I said, just, it's not worth it. I mean, the, the important thing is bill accurately, bill timely. Timely billing is very important. So you got to make sure you submit your charges once a week, set aside a day. Like I do it every Friday or I try to do it every Friday where I submit the week's worth of, of stuff that I've done in the hospital or in the ASC. Um, so you have to get used to, you know, you have to be regimented in sort of getting your coding in getting your billing in. And also if you have to dip into the line of credit, it's not, not the end of the world, but you just have to get a feel for it. The first year or two, or sometimes even three or four can be really scary, but it's doable, but you have to be able to build business as you're going. So 
And this is a bit like a, my wife likens it to a hamster wheel. So it's like you get on the hamster wheel, you just have to be prepared and, and get yourself fit enough that you can get through the hamster wheel and, and no one to jump off it too is important too. So then I guess you're kind of the exception, but the, the next question would be, who do you hire? I guess in your case, you're you're looking for a significant other, right? <laughs> but for those of us who have a spouse who doesn't, doesn't. do this, um, who is the first person that you hire? Uh, the first person you hire um, is usually someone who has a lot of experience in the field. So someone whose first job, this is their first job in medicine, it's not a good hire. The biggest difference you're going to tell between a practice that's probably going to do fine in a practice that is sort of going to be very reliant on, you know, or sort of captured contracting are going to be the way that staff comports themselves. And what I mean by that is if you have a very experienced person who's done surgery scheduling for, for instance, um, you're going to be very happy because they'll be used to diverting their attention when needed and getting back to the task at hand. So I would say, first and foremost, hire somebody who is experienced. Um, and someone who can uh, multitask and someone who can be independent. So I don't micromanage my staff at all. Now, let's say my wife didn't work for us and that let's say that it was completely just people who are un, unrelated to me first time in. And really for the first couple of months, it was like that because we had our son just as we moved into our new office space. So I had two folks working for me, one of whom would work for the office before me, and then one who came from a different office. But both had worked in neurosurgery before, and that's really important too. So if you have someone who's experienced, just being experienced is not enough, hopefully within your specialty. So experience is very, very important, not the cheapest. And I think that's the cardinal error a lot of people make. They try to get the cheapest person they possibly can, the least expensive, the person they can you know, pay $14 or $15 a, 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 an hour for. Back then, you know, when I was hiring, it wasn't that expensive, but it's gotten more now that you can get paid 15 bucks an hour at McDonald's. Why would somebody want to you know, have the stress and strain of a medical office when they can go to McDonald's, have a shift and go home and not think about it, and they get fed? So um, you have to really say you're, gonna, you're willing to pony up extra money for someone who can have experience and who can actually work independently that you do not have to micromanage them and show them how to turn on their Mac or how to, how to transfer a call. This has to be someone who is a self-starter, um, who can really kind of get themselves going and are able to sort of hit the ground running. That's probably the biggest, best piece of it. And please, please, please don't be cheap. Just you're, if you pay for, you know, if you pay for something that's less than stellar, you're going to get something that's less than stellar in return. This podcast is sponsored by Doc to Doc Lending, the personal lending platform for doctors by doctors. Traditional lenders overestimate the risk of lending to doctors because a lot of us carry significant debt. But at Doc to Doc, they know that as a profession, doctors almost never default on their loans, and they take that in consideration when they're setting our rates. I love what Doc to Doc is doing within our community, so please check them out at doctodoclending.com/pgtd. That's Doc to Doc Lending number two slash PGTD for Physician's Guide to Doctoring. Yeah, you want to just see patients. That's where you make the money. You want and to see patients. You can offload to other to, to someone else, someone well, you trust. Well, hold, yeah. hold on a second there, Tonto. Just hold on one second. You, you yeah. want to just think about this. It's very important that you do keep some skin in the game when you're running your practice. 
If you're in a small practice, it's very important. Do not lose track of two things. The keys to the mailbox where the checks are delivered and the online password for your credit card. Because what I've seen happen time and time again is people who are embezzled because they didn't track who's spending what on their credit card. They just gave somebody their credit card and they just start to spend. I knew a pain doctor who was embezzled out of hundreds of thousands of dollars by a person who worked for him for 17 years. And then obviously if someone has keys to the mailbox where the checks go or the PO box, wherever, whatever you prefer, then there's no telling where those checks are. And you may be looking for payment from several very large cases and they never come and you're calling the insurance company and they tell you, well, we sent it, where's the check? Right. So you, you need to maintain some control. And that's the other sort of facet of it is you have to be responsible still for certain parts. And I think if you start getting to the uh, mindset that, well, I, I'm just going to I just want to see patients as a small business owner. You really can't do that because you're immediately handing over the keys to the car to someone else. You have to stay involved. I'm not saying control the whole thing. You know, you're kind of like the captain of the ship rather than the guy who's steering it. You know, you don't want us to be steering the ship. You kind of want to be in the background and say, yeah, you know, I want to go a little bit to the left, maybe a little bit to the right. Just, But just sort of maintain some involvement because if you say, I don't want to think about it, I don't want to be involved, that's when problems start happening. That's when your accounts receivable becomes enormous. What the heck is happening? Oh, my God. Got it. Got it. Got it. So, so what about expansion, right? At what point do you say, you know what? We're going to need to hire a physician's assistant. We're going to hire a nurse practitioner or maybe go looking for another partner mm-hmm. or associate. Well, right? it, it depends on what your model is. Um, if your model is one where you have a lot of capitation or managed care, getting a physician extender uh, is perhaps a good idea. And, you know, when you find yourself working a lot of hours and seeing tons and tons of post-ops that really are just kind of on autopilot, that's generally you want to start looking for a physician extender, nurse practitioner, PA, or even a partner, depending on your model. If you have a model that is very high touch and the patients are very somewhat demanding um, and you're in, a, you're in a very large metropolitan area where there's a lot of competition, you've really got to focus in on distinguishing yourself uh, amongst the other practices, because they're going to be the ones that have the PAs and the NPs, and they're the ones that see the patients post-op. And it's when patients are having issues post-op is when you get into trouble. So if you're a high-touch practice, then it might be that you may need to hire an associate when you find yourself um, you know, constantly working, constantly putting out fires. Or you may just say, I don't want an associate, I don't want a PA or a nurse practitioner, I'm going to stay solo, and just build relationships with other practices so that I can go out of town or I can, I can call so-and-so and they'll cover for me. Um, but you obviously have to foster trust amongst your peers to do that. Because if you're a guy who operates and then, you know, has a massive tonsillar bleed, if you're an ENT, you know, I just say that because that's what my brother does. And, and so, or if you have a, a CSF leak, I think you do your nose and throat too, right? You're, you're, mm-hmm. you're, exactly. So if you have a massive tonsillar bleed and you're just like, you're in, you know, Curacao and nobody knows, knows about it and you have nobody covering for you. And you say, send to the ER, that, that doesn't foster a lot of trust. Yeah. You know, you really got to sort of gain um, a good reputation in the community if you're going to do that and have a lot of trust with your competitors slash colleagues in order to do that. So it really depends on what your model is. And that's dictated a lot by your geography and your paramics. So if you're in a large metropolitan area like New York, 
you may want to just hold up a shingle. And if you have got a great reputation, you handle your post-op complications. And this is the one time you've been out of town for five months, six months, and something just happens to happen. It does happen. You call your, 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 your colleague up who's in a different practice and say, oh, sure, Brad, no problem. I'll go see that guy. Thanks for the heads up. Rather than just him, him, the patient showing up at the ER and then calling him and say, by the way, Dr. So-and-so's patient's here. Who? What? So there, it, it depends. I mean, you can do it those, those three ways. I personally don't have physician extenders. Um, I've chosen not to take a partner on. There's a number of reasons. I think, you know, my model's working. I don't know if it'll always be that way. I don't know if it'll be forever that way. But if you have this dream of what you want to do, and you do a good job of it, you should be able to do any of those models would be just fine. And it's hard to know exactly when it's time. I and mean, you'll financially know if it's time to hire a partner because he or she will need to take time to ramp up and you may have to support them. And sometimes you have recruitment agreements with hospitals or you know, you maybe have a private equity backed firm and they're gonna pay for it. Or maybe you, you're a massive group and you have enough money, you can sort of float that person for two years and do an income guarantee. But really, at the end of the day, you also have to prepare for that. They may not be a good fit for your practice. And you may have, may have put on a good face during the interview process. And you're like, this is not going to work out. So you have to think about to yourself, well, what if he or she leaves after six months or a year? Is it going to devastate us? And if the answer is no, then see what happens. Yeah. A lot to think about. All right. Let's, let's talk a little about just neurosurgery. Okay, because I, I have yet to have a neurosurgeon on the show. Every so often we talk about something clinical. And I just I just have a couple small questions. Um, the first is this overlap between orthopedics and neurosurgeons, right? Both do spine. Now, right. right, as you said, I'm an otolaryngologist. We do rhinoplasties. Plastic surgeons also do rhinoplasties. And I'm sure the plastic surgeons will say they do a better rhinoplasty and the otolaryngologist will say, actually, we know more about the nasal airway. We do a better rhinoplasty, but ultimately, you know, it's, it's not like we end at a certain place and they begin and, you know, there's, we can both do a good job, hopefully. Sure. Sure. Doing it right. But, (laughs) but what about orthoped or orthopedists and neurosurgeons when it comes to spine is there is there a, like a clinical difference like orthopods are not allowed to go into the spinal canal whereas neurosurgeons are or is it really you're both kind of there there's just there's just overlap there like general surgeons yeah. and laryngologists both do thyroids right yeah like like a lot of specialties there is an overlap in between our specialties you know for instance there's the obvious ones like neurosurgeons we do craniotomies and endonasal pituitary resections and no one else does, right? No one else does those, those kind of things. And like, you'll never see a neurosurgeon do a hip arthroplasty. It's just not what we do. Um, what we do kind of where the Venn diagram does cross is obviously in spine. Um, and a lot of us do very similar things. In fact, there are some fellowships that are combined ortho and neurosurgery. So you actually have training, cross-training going on in between specialties. Um, and obviously, How there's been some contra- great. Yeah, it's very congenial. But there, there's been a paper too that sort of says the complication rate may be lower among neurosurgeons. I don't really throw infusion, infusion, but I don't throw that in, in my colleagues' fa- face because I have ortho spine surgeons who I respect tremendously, who I who I collaborate with and work with, and have the utmost respect for. Um, especially when it comes to deformity surgery, I think the the ortho surgeons are definitely ahead of us in terms of scoliosis and the way they've thought about it just for decades. And neurosurgeons are kind of late to the party. Um, one of the big things, though, is obviously intradural work, right? So intramedullary spinal cord tumors, so, so tumors within the substance of the spinal cord, 
spinal schwannomas, uh, neurofibromas, those kind of things are sort of really solely the purview of the neurosurgeon, intradural work. Um, so we really generally discourage orthopedic surgeons from doing that sort of work. I I'm, I'm sure there may be one or two in the, in the country that might argue that they can do it and it's their right to do it. Um, you know, like Ian Malcolm said in Jurassic Park, just because you can do something doesn't mean you should do it, right? So, I mean, I could clip an aneurysm, but I choose not to because I haven't clipped an aneurysm over 12 years. It says right in my certificate that I'm allowed to, but I just think it's not the right thing for the patient. So that's kind of how I, I go by guidance. And, and we, since, you know, on a slightly different topic, you know, as in your big, uh, in your, if you're in a big academic center, then there's obviously going to be crisscross between ortho neuro. There's sometimes competition. If you're out in the community as a private practice person, you're going to get, you know, you'll be the second, third, or fourth opinion. A lot of these patients will be doctor shopping, and they I get this question: What's the difference between an orthopedic and a neurosurgeon doing spine? And I just talk very briefly about what our training is, and that's our we're doing spine pretty much from the beginning, from year one to year seven. We're doing spine. Um, ortho kind of does a lot of stuff. They have very intensive spinal sections and they oftentimes will do a fellowship. Um, I chose to do a fellowship because I really wanted to do more complex things. But I would say uh, we, there's equally good and equally bad, both ortho and neurosurgeons. But I think it's more the, the discernment that really, that really separates good spine surgeons, that means ortho or neuro, uh, from bad ones. And I think we all should know what our limits are, what our expertise is, and what our, our uh, you know, obviously, uh, you know, unfortunate things can happen during surgery and we all have complications, but, you know, obviously if you feel comfortable doing something and you're good at it, then there's not a problem. And sometimes, you know, you know complications happen during surgery. And if you're good at something, that's not to say it never does. But I would say if the patient's comfortable with the spine surgeon, whether it be ortho or neuro, that's what I tell patients are most important. Do you trust the person? Because this is the beginning of a relationship. You're going to have surgery. There is a recovery period, you know, God willing, everything goes fine. Just be comfortable with that person, whether he or she is an orthopedic surgeon or a neurosurgeon. Obviously, have my preferences, you know, but um, I have equal respect for them. I think, um, I think, if you're discerning, you're careful, you do a good job. I think it, it, it's pretty much up to the patient who they think is going to be best. You had mentioned a surgery center. Mm -hmm. What does a neurosurgeon do at a surgery? <laughs> like I do a lot of my tonsils there and tubes. Uh -huh. or your yeah. brother does the same, right? Yeah. Septum, sinus surgery. Yeah. All these people are going home the same day. Right, right. Well, believe it or not, I mean, 15 years ago, you know, I, I'd have been like, you got to be, I mean, we have no business in the surgery center, you know, other stuff that we do. But when you start thinking about the smaller things we do, for instance, a single level cervical disc fusion or disc replacement, you know, we do, we do the anterior um, ACDFs. I just did one on Friday and she went home, you know, four hours after surgery. She's doing well, thank goodness. Um, those kind of surgeries, especially things like kyphoplasties, where we inject cement or we do spinal cord stimulators where we implant electronic device to reduce pain, um, you know, lumbar laminectomies or laminotomies or microdiscs. A lot of those are being done outpatient. And there are people who are sort of pushing the envelope, you know, doing um, anterior lumbar fusions and disc replacements in the surgery centers and, and are doing a good job of it. So it, it depends what the surgeon's comfort level is. Um, obviously, we can do things outpatient. So far, we haven't done outpatient brain surgery yet, but um, there has been one or two papers about outpatient brain biopsies, which I, would, I don't think I'd ever do. Um, but you know, if you're thinking that the person is young or they're robust, 
and you can do something small for them and it's very safe for them to go home, we do things like cervical arthroplasty or lumbar arthroplasty or micro discs. Those can be done in a surgery center, definitely, or, or battery swaps for spinal cord stimulators, even putting in a battery swap. So obviously you want to make sure you're There's no careful. USB port? <laughs> no, but it's really cool. It's got inductive charging. It's pretty awesome. I don't know if you've ever seen one of those things. They're pretty rad. Um, the, the, the main thing is, though, like, again, discernment, like judgment. Um, if you have a, an 82-year-old person you're doing an anterior cervical fusion on, well, obviously that's not a person you want to go to a surgery center um, because they could have dysphagia or, or a number of things that can go wrong. Um, but you just want to use good judgment. And, and I don't recommend like jumping right into the surgery center unless you were doing it during your residency or fellowship. If you're like cool with it, you do one or two level disc arthroplasties or disc replacements and you're good at it, you're, you, you have a good backup for you in terms of a transfer room with a nearby hospital, God forbid something happens. But those are things that you can do, you can do. But again, things you know can go wrong, they go sideways, not for anyone's fault, but you know, obviously stuff happens. But it's important that you you do good jobs and you're careful during the surgery center and you're providing value to the patient and to the center, of course. So for this next question, it might get a little, little dicey, little, little, um, <laughs> controversial, <laughs> controversial. Okay. So, sure. so correct me if I'm wrong at any point, but if someone has an injury at work, right, they end up with a back pain. Um, they consult with a personal injury attorney, right? Um, the personal injury attorney would have them assessed by potentially a spine surgeon, possibly neurosurgery, possibly orthopedics. Um, and if there is a lawsuit and the injury is severe enough that it necessitates surgery, then the compensation for that lawsuit is going to be significantly more clearly if you're, oh, I got better with physical therapy is much different than I required a spinal fusion or a laminectomy, whatever the surgery might be, right? So it sets up this conflict of interest such that certain personal injury attorneys might end up referring their cases to someone who's more likely to operate. And it becomes this cycle of conflict of interest on top of the fact that the compensation from commercial insurance is significantly less than the compensation from workman's comp. So mm -hmm. there's a conflict of interest on the part of the surgeon. In fact, there are some surgeons who, who don't take commercial insurance, who, who get the, the bulk of their income from workman's comp. So it's this, it's this cycle that is just fraught with conflict of interest. Am I incorrect in any of that? No, I think it's, I think there are potential major conflicts. Um, you know, workman's comp now in California is being capped. So it's it's not as lucrative as it used to be. But there are people who do a lot of workman's comp and they're very good at it in terms of assessing and treating patients and deciding who's surgical and who's not. But there is a lot of potential for, you know, uh, over-operating or doing things that are maybe somewhat controversial. Um, nobody ever wants to do, and I, I don't know a single surgeon who ever wants to do an unnecessary surgery. Now, obviously, we, we operate every single time to try to get somebody better. That's pretty much without without uh, without fail. We all we're all in it to to help patients. There are some you know uh, relationships that become a little bit sort of uh, questionable or controversial 
that I think we really, as a specialty and as physicians, we have to very be very, very careful of the uh, compensation of the, uh, I should say, I guess the inducement of doing things for money. Um, I hope that people, meaning surgeons, are maintaining a very high ethical standard and really trying to focus in on the patients that need surgery. I mean, I think the main thing is looking at it from a different side of the coin. There are patients that are badly hurt at work or injured in automobile accidents, and you also don't want to deny them care. You never want to deny them care. If they need an operation, they need an operation. But the individual surgeon and physicians really have got to maintain a high uh, I think a high threshold to operate in those cases and just make sure that you're, that you're always keeping the patient's well-being in, in the top of your mind, because the last thing you want to do is have someone have surgery and then require more surgery to fix that surgery and so on and so forth. Obviously that can happen even if you're operating with the best of intentions, doing a beautiful job and have beautiful films. Sometimes again, stuff happens, but I, I think we have to be very careful and cautious when uh, we're in that sphere because there is a potential for doing too much or, or operating perhaps a little bit heavy handedly. But again, every surgeon I know, every physician I know, they always have patients' uh, best interest in mind and, and surgery is done on indication. And I hope it's always done on indication for, for cases like that. I just think patients also have to exercise some judgment as well. You know, if they think something is a little bit maybe too heavy handed or maybe perhaps too bit aggressive, they should or even uh, maybe uh, absolutely will get a second opinion or even a third opinion from an independent surgeon. That might be a good way to sort of mitigate that as well in case they're concerned. But isn't there particularly in spine a good amount of subjectivity in terms of the indication of surgery, meaning like the severity of the pain? Now, my wife had a microdiscectomy. I guess it was a year, maybe even two years ago. Wow. Um, she was, she was on the couch. She, she could not, she could barely move, you know, and we have three young boys. So like lifting and move, it was, it was, she was on a lot of pain med and then my, she's pain-free on like an unbelievable recovery. Right. Um, but if you were to take an MRI of my spine, right, I don't have any pain, but I've, you know, spent a fair amount of my youth lifting weights. So my spine might look terrible in certain spots. Um, the corollary for, for my field would be a, um, a deviated septum. I'll look in somebody's nose and it looks awful. I'm like, well, how are you breathing? Fine. K how do you breathe out of that nostril? I, I don't, but you know, I've had it for so long. It just doesn't bother me. Whereas someone else mm -hmm. have, might have a mild deviation and they're like, oh my God, I feel like right. I'm not getting enough blood to my brain because this is so stuff like it's just they're miserable they're miserable it's like claustrophobia and then you do you operate them and they, they do great so the you know the the finding the objective finding doesn't necessarily correlate with the subjective symptom but when you have this conflict of interest of potential compensation on the part of the patient right how do you navigate that where their three out of ten pain is now a seven out of ten pain Mm -hmm. I, I think you have to foster trust between the patient and the physician. And I think you have to really counsel the patient. If you think there's a disconnect between the amount of symptoms and their scans, you can always express your concern. Uh, Mrs. Smith, Mr. 
Johnson, I'm concerned about your outcome after surgery. I mean, yes, you have this disc that's degenerated. Yes, you have concordant back pain, but I'm really concerned that if we operate, it may not give you as much relief as I hope it would. And really you have to foster that going back to training, but also building it through your experience as a surgeon where, you know, you see patients with certain conditions, they may not get better if you operate upon them. There are guidelines out there now uh, for operating on lumbar disc degenerative disease, uh, putting out by our organizations, but that's that. There are guidelines. Really, it's just the clinical acumen of the surgeon, and I think it's really, really important getting back to the basic, even though it's a sort of um, uh, a relationship fostered by a legal proceeding or something like that, I don't think your fiduciary responsibility ends because it's just a legal thing. Um, I, you know, you, you need to maintain that relationship and be honest with the patients. If you, in your heart of hearts, you're not sure that they need the surgery, but the patient really wants surgery, you have to counsel them very, very carefully. And you always want to give them other options, you know, go through the other things. Now, obviously there are patients who come in, they say, I'm not interested in therapy or I'm not interested in, in injections. I just want to have the surgery. Well, just so you know, we like to do those things beforehand, but I am in extreme pain. All right. I understand. But just so you know, you can do those other things. At any point, even up to the moment before we roll back to surgery, you're able to say, you know what, Dr. Gantworker, I'm not ready to do this. And that's fine. That's okay. I, I just think you, you know, surgeons have to maintain that level of trust where the patients feel they can be honest with you, be truthful. And if you're concerned that they're not going to be a good operative can't, you can always say no as well and just say, yeah, you know. I'm not seeing that three, four disc causing your your the back of your heel pain. That doesn't make sense clinically, and it doesn't fit with the dermatomes. I'm just really nervous about doing surgery on you, and I really think we should look at other things. You have to be, well, you know, you know the yep. green light, green light, yellow light, red light. I mean, if you have a flashing red light in the back of your head, then it it may be time to say, you know what, I'm going to get one more test, or I'm going to do a flexion extension film, or I'm going to do something else where. I just want to set both our minds at ease before we go into surgery and do something like this. And a lot of times surgery, what you're doing is not necessarily reversible. A lot, of, a lot, a lot, a lot to think about there. A lot to think about. So we, we've covered a lot. We've covered a lot in a short period of time, starting your own practice, ortho versus neurosurgery, um, conflict of interest in workman's comp, uh, quite a bit. Any, any parting words for our physician audience that anything we haven't covered? <laughs> Well, I think, you know, building trust with uh, your patients um, is going to be your priority. Building trust with your referring doctors is really important. Um, You know, you have to be prepared if things don't go well uh, to have a frank discussion with the patients. Um, And I just think always take responsibility for both your triumphs and your not so triumphs. And I think that will really set you apart in terms of building your business. And it may take longer. And I think the, the, the parting advice I would say, if you're trying to do this on your own or with a small group of trusted physicians, you have to be patient. You have to just build it up. And you have to understand that, you know, you may not get paid as much or you may not be as famous or be on Dr. Phil or the doctors or something like that. But, you know, patients, the community will ask, well, who would you go to or who did you go to? And they'll, they'll use your name. And that's how the slow and steady build goes. I would just say, you know, there's a lot of money to be made in medicine, but please, please, please try to keep your patients, always keep, I should say, always keep your patients' well-being at the top of mind. Um, and, and, you know, if you're not comfortable doing something, 
tell them that. And sometimes patients will be like, you know what, I appreciate it, but I'm going to go to a different surgeon. And sometimes the surgeries you don't do are the best surgeries, honestly. I remember one of the uh, mantras from, uh, although it doesn't really apply in your specialty, one of the mantras from, um, I think it was my general surgery rotation. If you do surgery for pain, you will find it. Uh, so you break it, you buy it. One of those things. So you gotta be, you gotta be, you gotta be prepared for, uh, for all yeah. those outcomes. I think that's great advice. Yeah. And if you're, and if you're looking to, uh, to establish trust with your patients and, and build better rapport, listen to back episodes of the physician's guide to doctoring. Cause it's all there to help you be, be the best physician you can be and foster that relationship. Dr. Brian Gantworker, thank you. You're clearly a busy guy. Thank you so much for your time. My pleasure. Take care of yourself, Brad. It was great to see you. Thanks for listening to the Physician's Guide to Doctoring. Be sure to subscribe and leave us a positive review on your favorite podcast player. I'm also available for medical legal consulting and keynote speaking if you're interested, or to just give us some feedback on the show, email me at brad at physiciansguidetodoctoring.com. I'll see you next week. The ideas expressed in this podcast are those of the interviewer and interviewee and do not represent those of their respective employers.